far across the blue sea ocean, across vast, bad timing, vast <laughs> forests, forests that stretch under the clouds for thousands of miles, as far as the imagination can go. There, at the edge of the blue sea ocean, there was a harbor, a well-appointed harbor with the ships of merchants bobbing in the wrinkling sea. See them now with the ropes rattling. See them now with the masks rolling in the hand of the sea. In that town, there were many fine appointed houses. That was a town of merchants. And the richest of 700 merchants in that rich town was a man called Marco, Marco the Rich. He was so wealthy that he ate white bread every day and drank wine at every meal as if it was water. He had, of course, three sons. The elder two, Kasim and Kirillo, they were there in the winter skating and they were fast. They were there at the horse racing, winning the prizes. They were there at the drinking feasts when the horns were full. They knew what to say to the girls. They knew how to behave. They knew how to win prizes. They were two handsome, clever boys, they were. The youngest was Ivan, who preferred instead to sit on that great Russian stove they had in the house of his father, chewing sunflower seeds with his eyes closed most of the time. The other two had long black hair. He, however, had yellow curly hair under his cap. Time passes as it always has done and always will, and now these boys are young men. Arriving at man's estate, Marco the Rich called his sons to him. Well, he called the elder two to him. He said, now, you have become men at his time, that you moved from being boys to men and to learn the art of trafficking, buying, selling, traveling the world. Take, therefore, two ships, a ship each, fine ships too. I will rig them out with fine mariners. Take with you merchandise and cargo that's good to trade. Let each of you choose a different direction and let us see at the end of the year, at the end of the season, how you have fared and whether you have turned a profit. Those two young men set sail at dawn in their ships, fine ships loaded with gilt-edged candlesticks and mirrors and linens and cloths and all kinds of fine, expensive things, too expensive to buy. And they set off to trade. Asim went to the north, Kirillo to the south. And at the end of almost a year, they returned from the north, bringing reindeer hides, fox furs. 
precious stones. From the south, bringing more silks and swords and knives. However, they did not particularly turn any great profit. And when Marco the Rich looked over what his sons had brought back, he said, ah, well, when there is no fish in the river, we shall eat shrimp. Try again next year. And not so long after that, they again set off, again in those two fine ships, again with fine cargoes to try their hand in trading and to see if they could match their father and turn a profit this time. Now when Ivan, when he saw his two brothers set sail for the second time, Then he slid off the stove. Then he went to his father. And then, this time with his eyes wide open, he said to his father, Little father, I too would like to try my hand at trading. And although I am not as clever, although I am not as wise, although I am not as capable as my two elder brothers, nevertheless, I'd like to try my hand. Let me have a ship. Let me set sail. Give me some little cargo. Let me try my hand at trading. And his father, who always thought him to be a ninny. You know what a ninny is? He said, what? To give you a ship and cargo to go trading? You who've never done anything in your sorry little life but dream on the stove with your eyes closed, eating seeds. Why, it would be better to give you a cart and go around the neighborhood selling chestnuts or at least stay out of jail. His father often spoke to him like that. He said, Father, give me a chance. No, said Marco the Rich. I don't wish to throw rubles into a rat hole. He went then around his father's house with his head hanging low until he passed. Who do you think? His mother. His mother spoke to him and said, what's wrong? What's happened? Has your father said something? He said, yes. I have seen my brother set sail again a second time with a cargo, with fine ships, with sailors, everything. I asked him to give me a ship to let me try. And he refused. He said he'd be throwing precious rubles into a rat hole. Say no more about it, she said. Leave it to me. And then she spoke to Marco the Rich, to her husband. And he said, what? To let that ninny set sail with all our wealth and waste it in the ocean? Marco, you are known as Marco the Rich. You have three sons, and even if he were to lose by it, you are able to afford it to give him a ship of some kind, a cargo of some kind, and let him set sail and lose or win. Whatever failure arises, you can well afford it. Let him have a ship, but he would not hear of it. Not another word. 
but she was a woman and he was a man. And the day came when he called his son to him. And very well, he did not actually that long withstand her admonishments. He went to the harbour and he bought there a sorry tub that looked like it might spring a leak at any point. The mast on it was weak, and nevertheless, Ivan was delighted with it. And there he gathered up some of the old mariners that had been with him for too many long, long years and too many voyages, and put them in charge of the ship and hired a few more of those who hung about the harbour hoping for a little work. Shiftless characters, some of them. And in that sorry tub, with that weak mast, he ordered the mariners and his servants to bring a load of black and mouldy and moth-eaten wool from the back end of his warehouse and loaded the ship with that, saying he will sell it at the first harbour he comes to or let him throw it into the sea, what does it matter? And carrying that cargo of black wool with those old sailors, weary and tired from a thousand voyages. In that tub he set sail at sunset, just like the ninny he was. Saying a prayer before the holy images, he set sail on that voyage, hoping for good fortune. They sailed to the next harbour and the next one, but nobody wanted to buy what he had. They set sail then across the pure blue ocean, wild and free. And sailing across there, the wind took the sails. But after a week had passed, a terrible storm came. Of course it did. A terrible storm that blew that tub of a boat this way and that way and this way and that way until... Fighting against that storm, the old mariners were spent. And letting go the oars, letting go the sails, letting go the ropes, they gave up that ship into the hand of God. Somehow it was blown by that spout of water, by those winds from every point of the compass, into the lee of a small island. And in the morning, when the storm had abated and the sun again shone soft and bright on the world, they found themselves next to an island, bright and green, surrounded on all its edges with a luxuriant foliage. And from it came the singing of birds. The sails had been torn and the mast was badly broken and nevertheless, the ship was still afloat. Ivan ordered the old sailors, who we spoke to like children, said, sit to now and mend the sails as best you can, and I'll take the ship's boat, a little canoe, and I'll explore this island. Coming nearer the island, he saw that there arose from that ring of birds and woods a mountain of white. The day grew warm and then warmer and exploring through the woods and exploring through the beaches and exploring into the island, he hoped to reach there, maybe some glacier, some cool place to quench his thirst all those days at sea. 
and to drink something fresh. But climbing that white mountain, he found nothing but sand. Picking it up, hoping that somewhere in the top there might be ice or something cooling, he put a tiny little taste of it on the tip of his tongue and then realized that this was a dry island and that there was on it nothing except this white powder. This, he said, tastes like good Russian salt. This would fetch a good price anywhere in the world. And then he looked around the island in hopes to find a tall tree somewhere that might replace the mast. When he got back, the old sailors had already stitched up what was left of the sails. And he ordered then that the mast be repaired with a tree from the island. And that took some time. And when that was done, he then gave this beautiful command. Throw overboard all of that black wool that my father gave me. Cast every piece of it into the sea and sweep out the whole of the ship. We are carrying a fresh cargo. And then the following day and the day after that, and glad they were when those days were over, the old mariners and everybody else on the ship set to to carrying load after load after load of that good white salt until the ship was heaped high with it all around the new mast. And with that heavy cargo, that heavy boat set sail from that island that no one had seen before. And not knowing where they were, they again let the ship roll into the open sea in the hand of God. And whether they sailed for another week, another two weeks, it doesn't matter. They arrived at a well-appointed harbor with many other fine ships there. And the city they could see in the distance had turrets and towers rising from it. And it looked like a place where you could do business. Ivan ordered the ship to be tied up there. And then, with a small bagful of that good salt, he set to to find the marketplace in that town, greeting strangers as he went, asking directions until he arrived there in the marketplace, the place where the trading was done in that town. And there were all the merchants. Just like his father, shrewd and wise men bargaining away. And once he listened for a while, he joined in and asked, tell me, what kind of price do you give for good Russian salt? Salt, he said, show us this uh, salt. And he took out a handful from the little bag that he had tied to his waist, his pockets, and he held it out. And the first merchant said, why, that's nothing but white sand. We can get that anywhere. Another merchant came and said, what is this youth selling? Selling sand in the marketplace? And then other merchants joined until all of them were there, laughing, giggling at the youth selling sand in the marketplace. Another merchant, older, came over, looked over their shoulders to see what the commotion was about. Selling sand in the market, why, we can get cartloads of it. 
for pennies. Must be some kind of ninny, he said. But when Ivan heard that word, he knew well what his father used to call him. Then shame came over his face. He put away his white sand. And he left the market, walked away with his head hanging down lower than his shoulders. But weary from the long journey, from the sea air, tired and hungry, he caught a whiff of meat roasting, of something boiling, of something cooking, of a stew in the making. And that aroma drew him like a rope, and he followed it until the end he came to a large door and a great stone wall. And just as he was passing, the door flung open, and out of it came a large, burly man who just so happened to be the king's cook. And that large, burly man called over to him, Hey, stranger, you have a cap of foreign shape. Perhaps you're hungry. Hungry indeed, he said, for I have traveled more than 10,000 verse to get here. Ah, then... You should eat a little bit. Appetite I have, he said. It's a long time since I remember smelling food, let alone eating the likes that are cooking now behind that door. Then come in and take a seat. And after we have served the king's supper, you can regale us a little bit with stories from your land. For surely you're from a far-flung foreign place. Take a seat here. Now, young man, try a little of the meat. Try a little of the kvass. Drink a little beer. Have a little of the millet. Try the vegetables. He sat down, more than grateful to have the plates, the food that were offered to him, and the drink. But then when he tasted it, hungry as he was, he thought, this is good meat. This is good vegetables. This, this is royal food. And he could see all the scullions and servants, all the... All the hands in the kitchen running hither and thither, rattling the pots. A great commotion was on where soon it was to be the king's supper. He took a little of the white sand from his pocket and sprinkled it on the meat, sprinkled it on the vegetables, tasted it again, and then his supper became a delight. He said, oh, This food is good, but they know nothing of salt. There was a great commotion and a sudden shouting, and then it was time for the food, the soups, the roast meats, and all the vegetables to be laid upon golden plates to present it before the king. And there was a certain moment when all of them rushing hither and thither had disappeared from the kitchen, and in that silent moment, he saw his opportunity. He took out his little bag of sand, and he sprinkled it on the meat, he threw some into the soup. He threw it on the vegetables and then sat down and continued to eat his supper. When that head chef saw him sprinkling the white sand, he didn't see him put it on the main meal. He saw him put it in his own meal. He said, be careful, lest one tiny grain of that sand you're eating should get into the king's meal. But if it does, and he grates his teeth upon it, 
I will lose my head. Well, don't worry about that, Sadeev. And he finished his supper, and then, on those golden dishes, the food was brought up before the king. The king was at table with his queen and his daughter. And the servants brought the food. He began to eat the soup and declared, You know, I didn't think I was hungry today, but by the stars and by heaven I am. I have never eaten soup like this. It was the same with the roast meat and the vegetables. The queen herself said, Hmm, yes, even in my father's house before I married you, we didn't have soup or meat like this. They ate until it seemed as if there'd been nothing left of the roast duck except beak and claws. The head butler was embarrassed, unless their royal mouths were not filled. They ate every scrap of the food. There was nothing left. And when the king ate the honey dessert afterwards, he declared, why I have never in my entire life eaten a meal as good as this. Bring the head chef immediately. I must question him. I will ennoble that man. The head chef was sent for and came with his knees wobbling in front of the czar and put his forehead on the floor in front of the king. What, said that royal personage, what, said that king, was put into my meal tonight? Oh, I forgot to tell you, he wouldn't have said that if it wasn't for his daughter. Now, his daughter, you know very well what she looked like. Can you see her now? Well, she wasn't just beautiful. She also had a head on her shoulders. And she said to her father, there's a mystery in this meal and you must fathom it. Question your head chef before you ennoble him or give him anything else. And so the head chef answered, nothing. As our majesty, nothing was, your everything prepared as normal, everything prepared with the same care as always. Send then for the servants, for the scullions. Bring all the kit. They hadn't had time to take off their hats or remove their aprons before their foreheads were on the floor before the king. All of you, he said, I demand to know what was put into my meal tonight that has not been put in before. Everything prepared as usual. Majesty, Lord, everything done as always. Everything according to tradition, everything the way we normally do it. And then the head chef, fearing himself a last man, said, Majesty, Majesty, don't even spare my life. Only give me a moment. There was a stranger appeared in the kitchen tonight. His cap was of foreign shape. I thought he would entertain the chefs and the cooks and the servants after the meal was served. And out of kindness, Majesty, out of charity, I gave him sup and drink and a little of the roast meat. And while he was eating, he had a strange way and put white sand into his food. I fear the wind must have blown a grain of it into your supper. Let me go, he said, with my cleaver. I'll take his head and bring it to you, and then you may take mine. Bring the sir, bring that boy, bring the foreigner. And the guards went then. And Ivan was hauled from his seat in the kitchen where he'd been sitting alone by the guards. And he too, with his knees shaking, was flung before the Tsar. 
Did you? Said that royal king. Did you put anything into our royal supper tonight? Now, what do you do when those moments come? <laughs> when those moments come, he said, yes, I did. I took a little of your meal and it tasted to me as if it would be a little better with a sprinkle of salt. And so I dared to put salt into your soup, into your roast duck, to your roast meat, into your vegetables. Salt, said the king, show me this salt. Ivan approached him, opened his little bag, and put a pinch of it into the king's hand. The king then took that small pinch and put his tongue to it. And then he smiled and said, God's world is wonderful. How much of this salt have you got? An entire shipload, said Ivan the Nini. A shipload. And what price were you seeking for it? And if ever this happens to you, that's your moment. <laughs> I'm seeking its own weight in gold and in silver and in jewels. Bag for a bag. Done, said the king. And he announced that the unloading of the stranger ship should begin immediately. And it was carried on all of that day and all night, under guard and under the moonlight, cartload after cartload after cartload. And while the salt was being put in to the king's vault, gold and silver and jewels were being carted back to Ivan and in his ship. When all of that was done, the king was well pleased and heaved a sigh of satisfaction and then invited Ivanini to stay with him for a while. And seeing the sorry state of his ship, suggested that he rest for a while and that new sails be made and the mast be better repaired. Such a cargo, he said, cannot be entrusted to your poor ship. And Ivan agreed. The king invited him to eat with him during those few days while the ship was being refurbished. And what do you think happened during those few days? After a week, or maybe it was two, or maybe it was three, had passed, it was time to resume his journey. You say you're leaving in the morning, said the king. Yes, said Ivan the Nini, and as he said it, his heart plummeted down into his boots. Why? Because he had fallen in love with the king's daughter. But he was a merchant's son. He was not a royal person. And a merchant's son cannot marry a king's daughter. Uh, not back then. She heard that the foreigner was to set sail 
the following morning. She went to her father and said, you know, I haven't been feeling very well lately. And she hadn't. She'd been weeping away, thinking how she couldn't be with that strange boy from across the seas. He said, uh, yes, my dear, he said, you haven't looked yourself at all. I think it would be good for me to take the sea air in the morning. I'd like to see that ship as well, set sail. So um, I'll tell my nursemaid I'm taking a walk in the morning early. Oh, yes, my dear, he said, of course, that would be a very good thing. When the morning came, after she had wept her tears, then she kicked out of bed the poor old rusty-kneed nursemaid and said, get up, you bag of bones, we have to go for an early walk to the harbour. Come on, the sun's nearly up. And that poor old lady got out of bed grumbling and followed her charge down to the edge of the sea ocean and the harbour where was bobbing on the waves, on the wrinkling waves, that ship loaded with gold, silver and jewels. His heart leapt back up into his chest when he saw her there. She greeted him and said, I've come. I wanted to see your ship set sail. What a fine ship you have. She didn't know much about ships. Tell me, she said. May I come aboard? Why, why yes, of course, he said, of course. And when she put foot on board the ship, she said, so how does the ship sail? He said, we unfurl the sails and then the wind takes her. Well, show me, she said. Nothing would do then, but he ordered the old mariners to unravel the sails. Soon the wind was blowing against them. But why doesn't the boat move, she said. He said, because we haven't weighed the anchor yet. The anchor is still on the sea bottom. The anchor? Show me the anchor, she said. Nothing would do then, but those old mariners set to to hauling up the anchor. And the hard labour they were at that for a minute or two during which time she got distracted and a little bored and said, take me to your chambers. How do you live at sea? Where, where do you sleep? Where do you live? How is it? Show me. Went down below then and he showed her this and that and what with the nearness of her beauty and her talking, he didn't know his hand from his foot. Except that soon he felt the wave of the sea. He felt the boat rising on the tide of the open ocean. And then panicking, he charged up the stairs to give the order to turn the boat about. We're at sea, he said, we're at sea. The anchor is right, we're out of the harbor. Turn the boat. She said, wait, she pulled him by the hand. He said, we're at sea, the boat is sailing. What will your father say? She said, don't you want to marry me? And he looked at her, and she looked at him. And they let that boat sail out of the harbour. And the poor nursemaid nearly had a fit when she woke from her nap. Piled up against the mast, sleeping among the gold and the silver and the jewels. They set sail. They didn't turn back. They sailed for a week and another week. They sailed for a whole month. Every evening, they would sit and watch the stars come out in the prow of the ship. 
sipping tea and wines and talking about what? It doesn't matter. They sailed until they recognized the part of the sea that they were in. And the old sailors picked a course and now they were homing with that fine cargo back to their own harbor and to his father, Marco the Rich. And they weren't so long on that trade route when they saw in the distance two fine ships coming close. And as those ships came closer, they recognized them as the ships of Kasim and Carrillo, his brothers. Well, they signaled to each other and then they drew the boats alongside and then the brothers greeted one another, began to speak of their journeys until they saw the cargo that Ivan was traveling with, until they saw the woman who shared the journey with him. When they saw that long yellow hair, when they saw her royal gown, and when they saw his ship loaded with gold, with silver, with jewels, they became as jealous, green as spring grass. And then feigning all kinds of courtesy and love towards their brother, they hatched a plot. Why, wouldn't it be a fine thing, they said, if we all sail together on your ship and then we could have supper together and the journey will be short while we share stories of our adventures and our tradings. Let us, let us dine tonight and tomorrow night and the night after. And they made a plan like that, all full of charms and friendliness. But they were riddled with envy. And after they had supped and after they had a little wine, they threw Ivan overboard and left him to die in the ocean. So there you go, like, got to wash it up. You know? that's, that's how it often ends. Died in the ocean and the two brothers took his wife and his jewels and went off and gave birth to a few Putins. Is that, is that okay? <laughs> oh, you want a, you, you want a, you don't want the real world story, you want a happy one. No, that's not what actually happened. They did throw him over the, overboard and he did have to swim all night long until he found a piece of driftwood in the middle of the ocean and clung onto it. And floating on that ocean he was, the story says that he ate leaping swordfish and drank the rain straight from the sky. And in that way, survived for two weeks in the wide ocean until he came to a small island. Back on board the ship, his two brothers said, oh, something terrible has happened to our brother and we did so love him, our grief will nearly kill us. The following night, they were drinking wine at the same table. And the next night of that, they were drawing lots as to who would get the girl and who would get the gold. And the girl went to the eldest and the gold to the second. And in that way, they traveled home. And if any weeping was done, it was by that princess 
for her lost husband, Ivan. Well, they weren't really married yet, but you know, they'd done a lot of talking. Ivan was washed up on the shore in the morning of an island, and on it there was a castle made out of driftwood and broken ship's timbers and trees washed up on the beach, a gnarled, twisted, old, ancient-looking thing. And out of it came a giant who came pounding steps down to the seashore with a bucket in his hand to collect water. Looking down, he saw Ivan there, half-drowned, lying on the rocks. What, he said, are you some kind of fish that you come out of the sea? And Ivan called up to him and said, I've been thrown into the ocean by my brothers. The giant dragged him out and brought him to his house. And then Ivan told him the entire story. The giant raged with the injustice of the story. And then he said, I am known as Far Wader. I can travel the sea ocean in minutes that will take you weeks. I can travel the seafloor, I can travel its winds, I can travel its waves. And my brother, Far Seer, has told me of these three ships that you mention. And so I know that there is truth in your story. And by my own hand, I will help you avenge this situation. I will carry you across the sea ocean and I will lay you down at your father's harbour in time to intercept a wedding that has been announced. Already your two brothers have arrived there with all of those cargoes. Already they have made arrangements. Already they have drawn lots. The eldest to take the girl, the youngest the gold. Already a wedding is announced. But don't worry, little friend. I will set you down at that harbour and you will hurry to that wedding feast and there you will make truth known. But first, I must have my breakfast. And then he waded out into the sea and hauled out of it a whale and walloped it on the seashore and broke its head open, cut it open and began to roast it in an oven and gave then a slab of the whale for Ivan to have for his breakfast. And after they had both breakfasted, then he put Ivan on his shoulder and then he waded off into the ocean faster than you can think or believe. And so that soon there, riding on the shoulders of that great giant, riding on those good fortune shoulders, he arrived and was set down in time to hurry to his father's house. And hurry he did from that harbour. You will arrive in time for this wedding feast, which is already prepared, said the giant. And I would come with you, but I fear if I was to come with you, I would eat every little scrap of food that was there and leave nothing for the other guests. So, farewell. I will return to my place in the sea. Only one thing, little friend. Do not ever boast. Boast of or tell of how you got here. If you do, my brother, far listener, will know all about it. I will come for you. 
I will take you back to my rocky island and you will be a long time mending my fire. Thank you, giant. Yes, giant. My friend, of course, yes. I will say not one word to anyone. And farewell. And so the two parted. And now, Van is hurrying down that road as fast as he can. And when he arrived in the courtyard of his father's house, there where the musicians were already playing, a huge feast had been laid out. The food was there on a dais high above there. There sat his eldest brother next to that princess. And there, his mother and father next, and there his other brother. And when he ran in to that courtyard, bedraggled and out of breath, still with the sea clinging to him, his father looked in amazement. So did everybody else. What, he said, you are not drowned in the sea? No, he said, but no thanks to my two brothers here who threw me overboard and left me for dead under the stars of the night ocean. Marco the Rich looked at his two sons, whose faces turned as yellow as a duck's feet, and saw there the guilt written on them. You are not sons of mine, he said, but sons of dogs. Leave this place and never return. And a new wedding feast was announced on Ivan and Nini's name day. And on that day, the musicians came. And on that day, the tables again were groaning under the weight of the roast foods and the fine dishes. And those mariners that had sailed with him, they nearly drowned and all the beer that was served there it would have been enough to drown a herd of cattle, they say. They poured it down their dry old throats and sang praises for the gods of the day and the night and the long journeys that are untaken. And they sang songs in praise of Ivan and Nini and what a great captain he had been to them on that journey. And everybody drank and Ivan drank and then the talking began. And then the boasting began. It was like what happens down there in that plastic palace every night. Then came out the stories. Why, said one of them, I will lift this dining table with one hand. And although the table was 20 feet long and was groaning with food, nevertheless, he began to lift it. So someone said he would break it and spoil the food. Another said, why, I don't even know my own strength. Last winter, there I was alone, thousands of verse from the... Anywhere you could call home, 12 wolves followed me all night long. I killed 11 of them with my spear and my sword, and the last one I killed with my bare hands. And another boasting began, well, the silks that the king of this kingdom is wearing, why, my wife has a better one than that. I brought it from Damascus. And on went the boasting until Ivan, listening to all of this and having himself supped a little bit and having himself bathed in happiness, sitting beside his beautiful wife, said, oh, well, all these stories are all fine and well, but you'll never guess how I got here. I came here riding on the shoulders of a giant across the, and that's how I managed to intercept my brother's wedding, and that's how I managed to, well, hardly had he said those words when there came 
a howling wind from the sea ocean. They felt a tempest coming over the harbour. The ships began to bob up and down in that harbour. And soon there was the great giant standing over him, then and there, in the courtyard above the wedding feast, towering. I told you to keep secret how you were here. And now you are here at your wedding day. Boasting away, you'll be a long time minding my oven for me. No, 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 oh, giant, good friend, he said. That was not me boasting. That was not me talking. That was the wine that had befuddled my tongue. The what that had befuddled your tongue? The wine, giant. Wine? What is this wine? And then... Ivan said, bring wine, bring all that's left, bring everything, bring every barrel, bring every bottle, bring all of it, bring, pour it all into a giant hogshead and they brought wine and they mixed in all the beer that was left too and anything else that was they could find that was even stronger into all was poured into a huge barrel, into a great hogshead and the bung was taken from him with his teeth and then that giant guzzled and drank all of it down as it poured into his throat, his eyes began to move in his head and then, when the barrel was drained, he dropped it on the floor and began to dance. He danced this way and that way. He broke all the courtyard paving stones. He broke the wall that was around it. He broke the slates on the roof of the house. And when he'd finished dancing, his eyes turned again, and he twisted and turned and then keel over and crashed to the floor among the wedding feast. And then began to snore and snark and snore for hours. When he woke up, Ivan had to remind him who he was, where he was, and why he'd come there. Oh, said the giant, looking around at the broken courtyard and the wall and the plates smashed and the tables and bits of the roof of the house missing. He said, mm, this was all because of your wine? Yes, said Ivan, it was after you drank the wine. Hmm. Well, I see I shall have to forgive you for your bit of boasting then. And he stormed off back to the sea. Farewell, little friend. And was gone over the sea. And after that, Ivan lived with that princess for a very long time and was always happy, always cheerful, and always praising life. Day after day after day and... Rejoicing in his great and good fortune, and well, if he didn't, we should.